Hello, this is Ben Phillips from Michigan State University coming to you from the Great Lakes Expo where we experimented with recording a live session for the Vegetable Beat podcast. I interviewed three different groups of guests from three different farms about how they uh, manage their UPIC operations. And they range from very large multi-farm organizations uh, down to smaller scale operations and also a very different model of uh, education for different wild forage species that can uh, fit into many different scenarios on a farm, in state land, uh, in public parks, and things like that. The first interview is with uh, the largest of the three groups, and it's called Blake's Farms from uh, eastern Michigan, Macomb County. And uh, take it away, Ben. So, uh, Blake's. Welcome. There's three of you here. Thank you for the invite. We're, we're very proud and honored to be here. And can you state your name for the audience? Lonnie uh, Decker, and I've been with Blake's for over 10 years. Um, farm planner. Um, done a lot of different jobs at Blake's. So, very. She, she was my way in to Blake's. She's very easy to talk to, and it's how I, I invited I invited her, and she invited three more. Only two could make it. Yeah. <laughs> um, my name is Brent Christensen. I am the newbie on the farm. I came in as a farm manager this summer. Um, Blake's has been a great experience so far. You know, taught me a lot, and uh, I look forward to sharing some some experiences with you guys. I am Stephen Campbell. Been with Blake's for 17 years. Uh, in this presentation, I am the planter. <clears throat> I'm a lot of things. <laughs> Steven, uh, Steven does everything at the farm. When we are in trouble, we call Steven. And for, uh, in our brief getting to know each other before we started, I think you've been there the longest, 17 years. Sounds like it, yes. Oh, sorry. Yes, I've been with the Blakes for a long time, especially out of this panel. <laughs> So uh, you, you've all noticed their matching outfits. Uh, one of Blake's uh, signature outputs is, uh, is, a, is a hard cider called Flannel Mouth, and I'm assuming that might be part of... Uh, it, could, it, it definitely could be. It definitely could be, but we, just, we do tend to go towards flannel in the company. Uh -huh. And this is our farm uh, logo. Okay. So we have the Blake's Hard Cider logo and we have the farm logo. Yeah, and that's kind of getting to one of my first questions actually, Lonnie, and this is directed at you. So how many farms is Blake's? Can you give the audience some idea of like what that is, what Blake's so is? We have, we have three retail farms. We have three retail locations with farms on each location. We have the, uh, the main one, the Blake's Orchard and Cider Mill. We have the Blake's Big Apple, and we have, it used to be called Blake's Almont Garden Center. It is now Blake's Backyard. It's kind of been transformed into a tasting room, slash garden center, slash nursery, slash farm store. Okay. And about how many crops for you pick, since this is a you pick uh, focused session, about how many you pickable crops are you guys running? So we're doing about 30, about 30 crops. And those aren't like varieties within a crop. Those are different <laughs> crops. Correct. Okay. Um, now, this might be split between you and Steve. Can you describe a little bit about uh, 
what kind of fruit you guys are running, and, and I know you do vegetables, which I think, in the grand scheme of things, is not as common as a U-Pick, except for pumpkins, as fruit is. So I'd really like to know about what you found is a, <coughs> is a U-Pick vegetable that seems to work. So at Blake's, we've always done um, a tomato and a pepper. All right, and what we found is with the vast people that we have come out to the farm, not just in the fall, they wanted more. It wasn't, you know, fruit is there, but fruit is gone. Mm -hmm. You know, when it's in, it's in. When it's gone, it's gone. So when we did started doing vegetables, and we said, all right, we can expand on this. So we, we did like um, eggplant. That was your first move outside of tomato pepper? That was pretty much. Okay. You know, there's other things, but that was our big transition into other product into other vegetables and that really caught on well a lot of a lot of a lot of eggplant sold wow okay um then we um wanted to do cucumbers and pickles but we wanted to do it differently so we trellised them mm -hmm. and it was a great endeavor worked hard at it um unfortunately this was not last year was not the best year to grow pickles and, to, and cucumbers mm. with all the rain we encountered um you know, we did put them on plastic, we trellised them, but there was weeks where you couldn't get in there, so what? Mm. So we're, we're not done trying that. We're gonna keep going at it, but we wanna make sure that, you know, hopefully it won't be this wet ever again. And um, we also trellised our sweet peas, our pea pods, which we've grown for years now, and the people love that also, the ease of picking, the, we get a better yield, our yield on our cucumbers and pickles were better. I mean, it's a, trellising is definitely a great thing for a U-Pick. It's the ease of picking, and the people enjoyed it. Yeah. So uh, a f follow-up on this. When, when you pick a crop like beans uh, commercially, there's two ways to do it. You can do a multi-pick sort of bean, or you can do a mechanical harvest of a bean. So you do it once, and the crop's pretty much trashed. How would you categorize a crowd of people through a bean crop or a pea crop? Are they like a mechanical harvester? Are they trashing it or are they like a... Well, this is a great question. Okay. I'm gonna hand this over to Steven okay. because he has done a lot of the bean work. He okay. does the, the planting, the harvesting. Well, he used to do the harvesting. We've moved that off of him. But hold on, we'll give this over to Steven. In my experience, the customers are very gentle picking these beans. And okay. They last for weeks. All right. And then when we do go out there with the, the picker, it just destroys them. Yes, yeah. very much so. The big thing about that is we, we plant beans week after week after week to extend the season and to have something available the whole season. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It works great for us. How many, how many plantings do you end up going through with a crop like that? And do, are there other crops that you follow a very similar uh, week after week planting routine on? Yes. Beans and sweet corn, we plant once a week, depending on weather. And we do eight to 12 plantings of okay. each. Yeah. And then so for the multi-pick things that are a little longer lasting, like tomatoes, maybe peppers, those are fewer plantings? So I believe this year we ended up doing it mostly in two sessions to try to have an early pick and then a late pick. Okay. That way we didn't run out when we run out of other stuff as well. We wanted to, we wanted to protect 
We need to protect that, that second crop. You know, let the people that come in in the summertime enjoy the pickles, the peppers, the tomatoes. It, but in the fall, when it's so busy and the orchard's so full, you have to have that alternative crop to go to. Mm -hmm. Because otherwise, you can't get them all in that, in that patch. And the other important factor of having multiple patches of crops in a UPIC facility is we're open seven days a week. And in order to handle pest issues or, or fungicide issues or whatnot, we need the ability to spray crop at times still and have that PHI to be able to close one section and mm -hmm. still offer that crop to our customers because it's hard to transmit that information that certain stuff is going to be closed certain days so we as a company want to have that ability if somebody walks in our front door that they can go out and pick the crop they came here for yeah yeah I was really impressed when I visited your farm with how well uh, pickable areas are delineated you do a really good job with that can you talk a little bit about that um, how um, what have you found works best to keep people where they need to be versus where they shouldn't be what are you putting, putting that thing to me for? <laughs> <laughs> so this was my first year dealing with UPIC and the amount of people that we have here. And you quickly learn, you know, what works and what doesn't work. And when you think you have enough signage, double the amount of signage. <laughs> um, you know, we at Blake's have a melting pot of customers from the Detroit region and English is not their first language and whatnot. So directing traffic in certain ways, keeping his stuff simplified as possible, the extra signage, the extra, you know, talk of our, of our employees to answer questions and whatnot. Each thing helps a, a long way to get people where you want. And at the end of the day though, you will never corral every single person People like to wander, people like to venture where they shouldn't. And uh, you know, you just have to do your best and learn from each, each experience to improve upon that as a company. That's a good answer. Uh, have, you, um, have you considered any um, signage of different languages? Has is, is that ever come up or? We, ha we have, we've discussed that last year and yeah. we're, we're thinking of a QR code. Oh, okay. So we would like to have that in place before the spring. So these signs that they would just be able to use a QR code, it would be in four or however many yeah. different language, languages we would need. That would, be a, that would be a really simple way to do that. Yeah, we need that not ripe. <laughs> <laughs> um, I had one other question about the diversity of the UPIC crops. Uh, so apples, they, they bear for a time, another variety bears for a time, uh, brambles bear for a time, but, uh, but they ripen within those windows in, in a gradual phase. So it's essentially a multi-pick thing. Some vegetables are like that too, but there's also a bunch of, when it comes to vegetables, there's a lot of single harvest things, root crops. Has that ever come into a you-pick situation on your farm? Like carrots, beets, anything like that? Has that ever made it? We definitely gave that a whirl this year. This wanted year? To, wanted to yeah. try that. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't think it went very well. <laughs> we, we're not a bad beet grower. Or, or a radish grower. Radish. We grew, we grew radishes. Radish it, was, it was not a good year to try this. We may have to try it again with better weather. So you, you think the crop itself was a problem and not the, you know, getting True. some attention to it for picking? I think if you had it out there, they will come. Yeah. 
they're there. They, they love to pick everything and anything. Hmm. At the end of the day, if you have proper signage and can get your customers to drive by that area or whatnot, you can sell a certain amount of any crop due to the number of people that we have through our farm, which is nice as a grower for me, especially it allows us to experiment with different things, find out what people like, didn't like, but yet we're still going to sell some of it. So we can start at a very small amount of a crop. And if it works, we can build off that in the long run and we don't have to scale to huge amounts of size right away. I see. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, uh, thank you for that. Uh, and I understand that um, you did a little bit of herbs and, and cut flowers. That's kind of a newer thing. We have another guest that's going to talk more about cut flowers, but I'd like to hear uh, your angle, and we'll get another angle in a little bit. So um, we did start, we did, you know, with the trending of cut flowers have been so popular lately. So we decided to put in a small area of cut flowers, and we, I kind of picked re, uh, uh, flowers that would rebloom. If you have a heavy cut, you would be able to get a, another bloom on there fast enough to where the customer wouldn't be disappointed. Okay. So we stuck with um, zinnias. I don't know if I would do cosmos ever again, but we did uh, a lot of rudbeckia, some, um, what else did we do? Gallardia. We did a little bit of dianthus. So it was a good, it was a good, and even if, you know, we did have a great, we had good sales with it. We didn't have great, we weren't killing it, but we did very well. But like Brent said one day, he says, you know what, he says, even if you didn't sell anything out of here, just the way it looked on the farm and the added color and attraction that it brought people, even if they didn't cut the flowers, they were all taking pictures in them. Mm -hmm. So they loved that aspect. So it, it did work. Now herbs, that was my idea, and I thought that was going to be this big hit. Looking from the outside in, the practice of harvesting them doesn't seem all that different from cut flowers. It's and not. It's, but it's, and it's like a vegetable thing. in another way. So you'd think like the confluence of those two things would make it a smash, but you didn't find that. I didn't be... find it that way. I thought, okay. okay, if they're going to pick a tomato, they're going to pick some basil. You know, I mean, <laughs> but I think that... Um, they didn't, it wasn't cut enough. It wasn't being cut regularly where we maybe should have gone out and cut it regularly. Okay. It went to seed too fast. Um, and other, off, other thoughts that we had, if we, do, if we ever did do herbs again, we would do classes. We would do um, mm. what you can, cooking with herbs, how okay. to use herbs, how to dry herbs, mm -hmm. and maybe make that more of our initial startup into herbs. Oh, okay. Okay, make it a more of a package deal. Correct. Okay. Well, that's great. Um, Brent, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about uh, what it's like as a farm manager of a farm of this size with multiple locations. You've got, uh, you've got a lot of people who've got to know how to deal with the public uh, who come in annually, and you've got to hire them annually, train them annually. Uh, and I know this is your first time coming in here. So uh, can you give me your perspective on how you, how you handle this or how you take it? Yeah, so Blake's is one of the most unique farm situations to work at for managing or being an employee. Any day you can walk into the farm and 
you can have a set schedule and it can just be totally thrown out the window based on how many customers are showing up and the demands that are needed. So when I'm looking at you know, the team that we have, I'm, I was lucky to come into a team that is very well versed in what they do and, and um, excels in handling the amount of people that they do. But you need a group of people that can roll with the flow a little bit and have experience in farming practices, but also be able to deal with customers in a professional set manner. Um, there's a lot of people in the ag industry, um, especially in the operator type position, that is not used to dealing with thousands of people in their work base. And building a team and setting your expectations for the team and sticking to your guns is a big thing. And when it comes to you know hiring and whatnot, we have many, many roles that are filled on the farm by seasonal staff um, that are you know local people in our community that have been coming to help out with a farm for a long time. And the, we could not do what we do without that extra help and give the opportunity and experience without those extra people. So, you know, for part-time guys, we're looking at guys that can handle public very well, can be reliable, show up on time, be flexible, because um, as many of you guys know in UPIC and, and various farms like that, it's very easy to have people sitting around not doing anything based on how many customers are coming to your farm or a weather event, and having employees that are understanding of, hey, I might need you to come in this day when you weren't planned, or I might not need you to work today because it's gonna rain. Mm -hmm. Super helpful for us as managers as well. Yeah. And then when I'm looking to hire new people, you know, experience is an important thing, but my number one thing I'm looking for is work ethic and people that are willing to learn and have the drive to, uh, be well-rounded individuals and not necessarily just be stuck on how they learned how to do things in, in their past. Okay. Do you have to figure out who's going to work best in a certain location because you've got three different places where this stuff's happening? For the farm team, um, us as individuals on the farm team, we handle all different locations. Nobody is set in stone for a specific location. Um, built within our farm team, our members have more specific roles that they kind of handle with, you know, Lonnie or myself or ownership uh, making suggestions on how they handle their responsibilities the best. But we don't, we don't try to itemize things by location okay. due to the widespread need of different equipment at each location and whatnot. It's easier to work out of a central location and branch out as a farm team. I see. Okay. Um, so one thing you'll notice if you go to the Blake's website and you, you get to their main splash page, there's a, there's a lot you can do there. And one of the things I thought was interesting and unique is that there's a link that you can click on that says, um, like, plan your experience or something like that. Mm -hmm. And uh, with a farm of your size and the number of farms, I think that that's a real good move because if you just roll up and want to do something, you might be at, uh, you might be at the wrong one. Um, can you tell me a little bit about how you came to that decision and how well it's working and how, you, um, how do you make sure the customer is feeling like they're getting received to the right place and they're gonna have the experience they're looking for? Right, so basically the first thing we, we always do is we do a weekly 
report that goes out on our website of what is available to pick okay. and at which location. Okay. Because every location is different. Uh, Blake's backyard does not have the apple crop that the other two loca locations have. Uh, they might have a better you pick for pumpkins one year than, than the other ones do. So that's the most important thing is to get that information out to our customers. Secondly, um, for example, Blake's backyard, we, we, have a con we have a rule that we do, do not allow pets. Mm -hmm. We have a lot of customers that try to bring their pets. Mm -hmm. So we have decided that with Blake's backyard, we allow pets because it's a smaller, uh, easier store to navigate, mm -hmm. easier location to navigate, and it's worked out well for us. We don't like to have to turn people around mm -hmm. away. We don't want to have to be the mean one that says, I'm sorry, you can't come here. You have to take, you know, you have to put your dog back in the car. Mm -hmm. You know, people want to bring their pets, so they take them over to Elmont. Mm -hmm. um, Big Apple, it might be because they can take, in the fall, they can take a wagon ride to the U-Pick, which the kids like. I see. Mm -hmm. So we try to keep it diversified, different for each location. Definitely the cider mill location does end up being the busiest one. Yeah. You know, it's a, it's it's a day-long experience. You're going to plan your... You're going to plan your trip to Blake's based on what you want to do. If you want to go to the tasting room, yeah. if you want to go to the fun lands, like there's not a fun land at Blake's backyard, so you know you wouldn't go there. Um, you know, if you, if you want to just walk around, or it just depends on what you want to do, but you can do that wait right through our website and make sure that your customer will know what they want to do. Yeah, you got to divide and conquer to exactly. get everything done. <laughs> Um, well, that's great. The weekly updates on the website is a good idea. Does that, does that translate to social media updates as well, or it's mainly on the main Blake's website? Ma well, as far as you pick, it's, yeah. ba it's mainly on the, you, on the uh, website. If there's special events going on, then it does translate into social media. Okay. Okay. So uh, I've got only one more question for you, and I want each of you to answer that. Uh, your own, take your own time. Uh, what is the most the biggest complaint or the most common complaint that you have as a manager and from customers? So from customers in the UPIC world, it would be that we have a minimum. Um, and, we, and the minimum is necessary. Like minimum haul to We have a $20 minimum per car. You could have 10 people in that car, but we have a $20 minimum. So, I mean, if you're in the orchards for three, four hours, and you come out with nothing, you know, <laughs> something's going on. But <laughs> so that would definitely be the hardest thing to communicate. And we do it with signage. We do it with pieces of paper when they come in, you know, anything that we can get that. We don't want people to come up to the window and say, well, what do you mean we have to pay $20? Mm -hmm. We want that known before they come in. That way, if they don't want to come, they don't have to. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's basically the only bad, really, you know, hard thing that's hard, it's hard to communicate to some of the customers. But um, as a complaint that I would have, maybe just the staffing issues that we go through, it's hard to, as is with everybody, it's hard to get help right now. Yeah. Yeah. So, I think that's all I've got. How about you, Brent? So, 
from a new person perspective, from the farm, I'll start with my biggest complaint. And it's not necessarily a complaint, it's just, I'm used to managing a farm for 60 hours a week or, you know, 100% of my time that I'm there. And the biggest difference for me was I probably spend about half my time now either setting up for customers, dealing with customers, organizing my employees that are the ones dealing with customers. Mm -hmm. And it's finding that appropriate balance in between running uh, a working farm mm -hmm. and also dealing with the retail side yeah. of it as well. It's a big transition compared okay. to what I'm used to. And you just, you know, got to balance your time appropriately and understand how to um, manage your employees to help you meet your goals as well. Okay. Um, from a customer standpoint, other than strawberries not being ripe in October, <laughs> um, some of the biggest complaints that we have, I would say, would be um, the amount of people on our farm on the weekend. Um, sometimes we are overly packed um, to the point where our parking is overflowing and it can be very frustrating to customers. And the other big thing that, you know, when it was hot and dry when I first started is dust control on the farm. Oh, yes. um, you know, we have a lot of cars going around the farm and that dust can build up like crazy and it can, uh, you know, it can coat, coat everything in dust and make the experience a little less enjoyable. So it's something that we have to spend a little bit of money to take care of. and. And whatnot, but um, you know, the the type of complaints that we get aren't necessarily the most obvious things. And it, and you, at the end of the day, have to listen to your customers mm -hmm. and see how they act, and see and hear their complaints, and adjust to it at the end of the day. Great, thanks, Brent. How about you, Steve? I guess the biggest thing in my world is uh, having employees that are willing to go the extra mile. And knowing the rain days, you may not be there, but this, when the sun's shining, we're going. And it's getting tough. Mm -hmm. It's getting tough finding these people. Uh, customers, yeah, I think they hit all the customer complaints. <laughs> I've had them all. All right. Thank you, Steve. Well, uh, I would like to see if you all have any questions. And Naeem up here is going to have a mic that he can walk out to you. Just raise your hand nice and high. And we'll try to get as many as we can in probably the next uh, oh, 15 minutes, probably. We have to cut it off around then. Um, given the amount of people that you have visiting your farm, have you ever given thought to um, doing a, like an attendance app where they go in and they sign up for an appointment time? If you know you can handle maybe 50 groups or 100 groups at in 10-minute blocks or 50-minute blocks or 15-minute blocks. How do you think that would work for um, the UPIC operation mainly? So we've, we've dabbled in that a little bit for some of our other things, um, events, some of our festivals we've done that with, and we've done that with our haunt. Um, the only problem we have with that for UPIC is that because we allow them to drive in, um, it would be they would have to go and sign, you know, the, it might work. We, we should maybe look at it. And it's only for the, the six weeks that it's really bad. You know, it's really, and it's only on the weekends. And, they, and it's, it's basically from 12 o'clock till close that it gets thick. 
And the U-Pick is a little bit different than front of house um, because we do let our customers drive into U-Pick and it is a, you know, 80 acre orchard slash vegetable area. So there's plenty of space to get spread out in that, in that system. Um, the, the issue that we typically have with traffic and whatnot is our parking lots and for front of house and they're kind of a, a separate area almost. Or, or checking out. Yeah, separate checkouts too, so. So my question is about the U-Pick, the vegetable portion of it. Do you, um, when you're checking people out, do you just give them like a half bushel basket to fill and just do it by that? Or do you charge it by the each different crop? How do you do that when they are driving in and driving out? So when we start out in the spring, it's by the pound. Okay, then we go slowly. No matter as, the crop. Well, in the in spring, it. it's only either uh, strawberries or it's pea pods. So pea pods we do by the bag or by a pint. And then strawberries we do by the, by the U-Pick tray. And we weigh that. We have found that through time, as we get busier and busier and we get more and more crops, the easiest way to do it is in a half bushel bag. Because we, or we do a half bag or a three quarter bag. Because you cannot weigh out all these different, prod, all these different vegetables. It, it just takes too long. So I handle a lot of the checkout in the fall or this fall, and um, we try to get to the point where we are weighing absolutely nothing and having a thousand cars come through and never have to get the scale out. And uh, you know we don't really ha have complaints, and it works out. The only issue is we do like a mixed vegetable bag, and we lose a little bit of data in the tracking for individual crops. But we live we live with having a little less data there. We sell them for 75 cents. I had the same similar question about how do you differentiate the vegetable pricing. Um, so it sounds like, just to reiterate, so make sure I'm understanding, you're doing a mixed vegetable you pick at a set price per half bushel bag, is that correct? And how much do you charge? So we do a vegetable bag, a half bushel vegetable bag, and it was 20, Five ninety-five or twenty-seven ninety-five, and then we do a apple or pear half bushel bag, and we we're pretty straightforward with the customer that they need to keep these two things separate. And I that was twenty-nine ninety-five. I have a question on scheduling. Does one person schedule for all three locations? Do you trade? It sounds like you trade up employees, and does it? feel like you pigeonhole certain people into certain locations because they do such a great job there, that kind of thing. Well, there, it's, that's not a simple question by any means. <laughs> um, so what do we have, about four or 500 employees during the month of October? Yeah. And it takes an army to run Blake's during our busy season, and we have a lot of different managers that have uh, different tasks at the given locations. So somebody that might spend a lot of their time at the cider mill from, well, in every month other than September, October, might spend their month of September and October at Big Apple or Almon or whatnot, specifically Big Apple as it is um, a seasonal location. But um, 
we try to give people set tasks, whether it's picking apples or, or um, spraying crops or whatnot. So that person that is familiar with doing that understands when, when it's been done, what's been completed, and there's, it helps reduce confusion among people that might do a little bit of the same task here, a little bit there, and, and so on. So, so if I heard that right, you have some people who are skilled at a certain task that you apply to all three farms because they can do it equally in all places. Yeah. Okay. And, and just to clarify, like, like let's say our UPIC booths, we have those three locations, and our managers at those locations will also, they will do the scheduling and staffing for the booth employees. Um, Brett does it for the cider mill, but our Big Apple location, the manager there will schedule the UPIC booth. But any time that there's any kind of work to be done, spraying, um, cultivating, whatever, that is on the farm team that goes and does that at different locations. Uh, two questions. One, I was curious about your dust control ideas. And then the second is um, any signage or wording about the $20 minimum. <clears throat> we have that issue of, you know, we're not a park. You're not, we expect you to come and enjoy yourself and do lots of things, but we do expect you to buy something. Um, so anything that you have found a good way to communicate that. So when we're unprepared, they would hook up the water trailer and water the roads just to try to hold it back for a while. And then we would call in uh, the chloride truck and have it professionally done. How do you, how do you make sure that customers understand the $20 uh, entry essentially for the UPIC part? So we have signs leading into the UPIC, um, and then we also have like an information card with our pricing on it that has a set of um, roles and recommendations that people follow, and it does also say on there. And we definitely have to deal with some customers that do not read the rules and, um, when they are leaving and you know come out with nothing and whatnot. And, you know, we'll listen to them and we'll have discussions with them and make it a, a fair assessment of the situation going on. But there's people that, you know, come to our orchard to not pick anything but to do photo shoots and stuff like that. So, you know, they're using our, you know, location for their photo shoots. So we believe that it's a fair for the $20 there. But, um, you know, there's, there's people that we see routinely come out and spend two or three hours in the orchard and you know, just tour the farm, eating raspberries, eating fruit or whatnot, and, you know, come out with nothing still. But that's kind of the reason why the rule's in place. So how have you enforced it? Signage. Yeah, or we signage. Just, just simply signage, and um, I guess I don't understand a, a better rule to, to, you know, inform people other than signage, and it's on our website. And so in the fall, when we're very busy, there are attendants that continually go around the orchard, and they'll say, you know, no picnicking. We have people that come out and want to picnic. Those, hmm. and like you said, it is not a park. It is, you know, a farm, a working farm. So we can't have them eating out there, picnicking. Hmm. So that attendant will also say, you know, they'll say, well, they'll be asked questions, and yes, there is a $20 minimum. And we are very honest with people, and we want people to understand that before they go in. Something I observed that might get to your question, when I visited, to go to the UPIC, you're funneled, your vehicle is funneled into uh, more or less like a toll booth. So it's not, 
like you can just tear onto the property unnoticed. That, that's been my observation. And I don't know if you've seen something different. No, and we do have a lot of big, big signs that we have had made. You know, and all of them have got the no eating, the make sure you wash your hands, no eating the, veg the fruit and vegetables, wash your fruits and vegetables. You know, and at, at the bottom, it's, there is a $20 minimum. I, I would say just in signage alone at our cider mill between variety signs, rules signs, pricing signs and whatnot, there's no short of 300 signs on the farm at any given time. And that's just for you pick. Not just any signs. You guys have well-made signs. It's yeah. not like spray-painted plywood. We do. Right. Yes. yes. Yep. Was so there you, another? Okay. Sorry. So you kind of already answered a piece of it. In our orchard, we kind of have an issue with people trying to picnic and then, of course, trying to sit out there and eat the produce while they're doing you pick. So the $20 minimum covers that. Um, kind of helps cut the cost of what you're losing with the guest eating. How often are you placing those signs in the orchard to make sure that people are seeing along with the attendants reminding them that they can't be doing that? So we have, so we have only one standalone sign as you're driving in of $20 minimum, but there's a list of rules and that $20 minimum is part of that list of rules. And then we, so we have another one of those as you drive in. Um, we have a piece of paper with pricing and rules that we can hand customers as they come in. And then there's also a list of rules out in the farm as well. So that's four different instances. And there's a sign before they go in. Yep. That says $20 minimum, no picnicking. Yep. So at least four different instances where they can see the list of rules and, and $20 minimums and whatnot. And, uh, you know, the truth is, too, there's just some people that plead ignorance to reading and whatnot, and you just have to walk them through, you know, the rules at the end of the day. I think we might have time for one more for, for the Blake's crew here. Yeah. So have you ever considered, um, if you've got your traffic funneled in really well anyways, uh, if they just pay $20 up front, get some kind of card or coupon or something, like a ticket, and then when they come up to pay, that ticket stands is okay. If it's over $20, what they have, then that's their voucher. And then they only have to pay the difference. So that way you're insuring no matter what, even if somebody only picks $5 worth of something and just wanted, you know, a lot of times people just want to take their kids somewhere to run around for the afternoon. That's different. So whether or not they pick anything, they already paid their $20. And then if they did pick and go over that, they just pay the difference of it. Is that something you've done in the past or considered doing? We have not done it in the past. Um, it, it, it could be a consideration. We pride ourselves on the fact that we're not one of the orchards that charge you before you go in. We like the fact that they are driving in, they're finding what they like, and then when they come out, they pay for their produce. And the other part to that is, you know, specific to our location at the cider mill, if we have a line of people waiting to pay $20 to come in, um, that kind of bleeds out into our parking lot that creates flow issues on busy days. So we try to just get them into the orchard or the U-Pick area as, as quickly as possible so they're not bleeding out into the parking lot and just 
absolutely destroying the flow of, of the rest of the business. That is a great point. That's a great point. Uh, the main location that Brent's talking about has um, actually a traffic light installed like for the farm. Uh, for the parking, yeah, yeah. So it goes right out to the road, and so I could see it could back up to the road itself even. Now to do that, we have a secondary booth that hands out your bags and your containers. That way they're in the orchard, out of the way of the I flow see. of traffic. That's when they get the bags and yes. things. I see, okay. Um, the we question was, do you have an orchard scout? To cover problems. Uh, okay. uh, the question is, is there a central area for parking? Um, we try to make parking areas all over the farm because we have multiple crops in various areas that, you know, if people aren't going to be picking peaches, this is even remotely close to picking sunflowers or peppers or anything like that. And um, we have to give the, people don't like to walk long distances at the end of the day. People, I've seen people get in their car and drive 100 yards to go pick green beans compared to peppers. So we try to make parking options available all over, the, all over the farm. And sure, we lose a little bit of tillable acreage by doing that, but I think it's worthwhile. And it keeps people a little bit better spaced out in less traffic. Okay, well, Lonnie, Brent, Stephen, thank you so much for coming here on behalf of Blake's and and entertaining us on this, uh, this subject and answering questions from the audience. Let's thank them, let's give them a, a hand. What I'd like to do now is actually play a little bit of musical chairs and have, have you three come down to this table and have Terry come up. And Bruce, I'd really I'd love for you to come up too. Watch out for the cables. Yeah. Thanks, Rachel. <laughs> so, we have some special guests here today. This is Terry and Bruce Hooper from Traverse City. And they, they have been running a farm up there called Hooper's Farm Gardens for quite some time. And uh, what, what they, well, I guess I'll let you tell me more about that. Tell me about Hooper's Farm Gardens. How did it start? And uh, where are you at now? We are, uh, can well. You put, can you really get that oh, up close? Yeah, absolutely. So, I moved back here from Arizona about 30 years ago. We got married. His parents had a third generation farm and grew tons of flowers. And at the time, I just wanted to be a stay-at-home mom when we got married. So eventually, I started going down to the farm market. We were one of the, like, the third, there were only three of us down there at the time. And with my art degree, it became increasingly clear that I really just needed to do wedding flowers. And being off the beaten path in Traverse City, we're just we're about halfway out on the Old Mission Peninsula. So not a big drive, 20, 25 minutes at the most, but we're not on a main road. So we needed to do one of those value added things. The cherries and apples were going to the wayside with the trees being old and the equipment being old. So we decided to downsize considerably from uh, how many 180. acres? 180 acres down to about an acre and a half at this point. So really small, especially compared to all you guys. I was on your website, which is fabulous. And um, yeah, so big, big change. And we totally had to get out of the farm market. And we got into the house, the home next door, which was as big a garden as his parents were, was almost in perennials. So 
studying flowers, and we went, we were, his parents are master gardeners, we became master gardeners, and decided we really wanted to focus on the local flowers, which if you're going to do 100 weddings a season, which we do, that's uh, four to eight a weekend all summer long, because you only have six months. So it's a lot of work, and you're, I, I work, we work seven days a week. He takes care of everything and grows it. I sell it. And I'm pretty sure the hands-on part is me ordering the seeds and maybe getting a few of them into the ground. But otherwise, I'm in the studio doing a lot of paperwork, which will, is my big complaint about having, when you get yourself so busy that you're not doing the parts you love and it becomes a business, you have to be very careful with that. And I'm starting to back off. In fact, there is a few flyers out there because we are trying to retire right now and selling our farm to move out to Bel Air to be with our grandkids. So continuing to take weddings at this point, but if you're going to have the you pick, one, getting your name out there is really important and that volunteer operation or volunteer opportunities that you have. And in Traverse City, everybody throws fundraisers for everybody all the time. So you know, you pick your, pick the ones you can and if you've got product and we've got flowers and I ended up with a, a huge Amish shed as a prop station so we could give all the props, the, the um, votives and lighting and arbors and everything so all these out of town brides because it is a destination wedding, wedding place, there's you know probably 10-15 floors in Traverse City, I turn weddings away. We've never advertised, we don't need to I wouldn't say that's optimal for every location. But Bruce, tell a little bit about yourself. <laughs> okay, like we've mentioned, I've uh, got a background in horticulture. I've used county extension forever since their, their classes, are, every class they have, I follow that and keep up with county extension and the latest things that are happening in the farming. And that's what I did for the 30 years while we farmed. And so I have the background in horticulture that I needed when I started concentrating just on flowers. And I found we went through the integrated pest management where you study, monitor your, your garden, keep on track of what's out there, and then you only have to spray to target certain things, and that keeps your cost down because spray is not expensive, <laughs> spray is not cheap. And also people don't like the sound of pesticides, and they don't want, are there pesticides on your flowers? <laughs> well, only occasionally. <laughs> so we try to keep that under control. So on the whole, a smaller farm, smaller operation, uh, fewer managers, um, and uh, if I heard that right, your business is, is, is uh, focused on flowers for events, weddings being a big one, and a, uh, a Correct me if I'm wrong, a smaller component that is, that is you cut or you pick. They can come to the property and do their, the cutting. Yeah, so we have lots of people. It's on the, the bicycle path for Traverse City. And so the advertising, we just didn't do it because we were so busy with wedding flowers and all the local people were supporting us and getting out there and donating your time and your product got us a lot of business, but COVID was actually a real blessing to us because while we lost and postponed and downsized our weddings, so many people wanted to be outside with something to do. We were 
just inundated with new client or new customers and now they're still coming. We did funerals, which we never do. We did wow. deliveries to Munson Hospital because no one could get product because of the floods and the hurricanes and all the places where they get their flowers and we get our flowers there as well, but we still do, I would say 80% of our weddings are what we grow because we have enough perennials and annuals that we have something new every week, constantly coming. We have, never have a dead season. So funerals are something you never do. Did. There are some uh, <laughs> flowers at funerals, not, I, I wouldn't think as much as weddings, it depends, I suppose. Is that a conscious decision to, to not do funerals or is that just, that just doesn't, there haven't been as many asks? There hasn't been as many asks because, okay. yeah, because we're a you-pick flower business and known for our weddings. Um, and there are cards up there you can look on our website. And like I said, we do 80 to 100 weddings a, a weekend for, I mean, or a year. A weekend. It feels like that sometimes. But, but um, yeah, I was really glad when October hit. And October is one of our busiest months, you know, and we still, we have a wedding. As soon as we get back this weekend, we have a, another wedding. And um, what was the question? Oh, it was just, <laughs> it was just if you made a, a, a choice oh, to not do funerals or if they just no. weren't uh, an Being opportunity. Being a you, you pick flower farm, I think a lot of people just never thought of us yeah. for that. But they do now. Yeah. But we're too busy. Okay. So um, flowers are your main bread and butter. Can you tell me a little bit about how you've made your decisions on the flowers you grow? And then also maybe for the audience, uh, uh, another aspect of flower production that doesn't come immediately to mind are the greens. Mm. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, and very important, and I know they, I haven't seen them yet, but they're supposed to be here, is Johnny Seed, oh, oh. Um, and that too. Johnny Seed, um, I was having a hard time finding a lot of seeds that I, are flowers that I get from the wholesaler that I really depend on, ranunculus and lisianthus and things that don't grow particularly well or slow or you only can plant them once or they get one bloom and they're done and you have to have a huge variety of, of perennials and annuals and we grow a lot of herbs because we use them as greens mm -hmm. so it, you may, yeah you maybe treat, treat them a little bit differently but we completely got out of vegetable gardening because we were we were doing so many herbs but um, so when we I finally opened a Johnny seed catalog because we get so many seed catalogs. And I started looking and by golly, they had all of those. Now some of them are pretty hard to grow, but um, this is, and anybody, you guys can take a picture of this if you want or I can email it to you, but this is a list of what we grow for our annuals. And we would get, I would say 100% of them from Johnny seed or lots of seed catalogs, they just seem to have more of those unusual things, um, the Madame Butterfly snapdragons, and, and they have really good instructions of if you have to plant them twice, if you should plant them inside or outside, what the temperatures are. Right. Start when to start them. Yeah, they have really, really good, yeah, great information. And we have a small greenhouse, and we do that, but, um, yeah, so that's how we, we decide what we want is Pinterest, everybody, you know, all the brides <laughs> want Pinterest, and we always tell them, you know, we're not going to copy anything. Everything we do is one of a kind. Any pictures you send me or I follow are only inspiration, Okay. and we don't have any unhappy brides. So 
if you can grow eucalyptus, getting back to your green point, you can grow eucalyptus, but as much as we have to use, there would be no way that we could grow enough eucalyptus. It grows far too slow. So plant boxwood. Boxwood is that bulky, grows like crazy. I mean, just a wonderful green to plant. Lilac greens hold up very well. Um, peony greens, after they're cut, grow really well. What other ones? Um, yeah, ferns, Michigan ferns don't hold up particularly well. They just, they poop out. Um, and I think on this handout, which isn't colorful, back there, I made you a list of things that we grow and when they're in bloom, and you guys are welcome to take that. And there should be quite a few greens on there. But the biggest thing to do is Take any greenery you see out and cut it and see if it holds up. Just put it in water. Don't put it in the cooler. Just put it in a little water. Hydrangea greens hold up. Hosta greens hold up. Um, what What's that one that... Euonymus. Oh, yeah, Euonymus. I mean, there's a ton of greens that you can grow in Michigan that hold up really well. Curly willow grows a little bit here. Harry's walking stick. I mean, we have a lot of trees that we use greens for. Hops, you know, when before hops were popular in Michigan, we started growing hops just for boutonnieres. Um, so, yeah. Interesting. Oh, like yeah. The, the cones or the leaves? The, the cones. Oh, yeah, wow. the, Yep. And um, the leaves don't hold up real well. People always want garland. There's not that many greens that you can go. You can't do grapevine. You can do the vine, but the grape leaves just poop out. They don't hold up. So, you know, when you're doing flower arrangements, we do you pick, but we also have a lot of people call and say, hey, I'm going to stop by. Can you just put a a bouquet out for me and it's hard to keep your bouquets outside because it's the weather is not primitive and we have a small cooler we tried plugging that in and you just don't know so it's pretty much call us we'll get it together for you or come by I usually have enough stuff cut in the cooler from the morning like we'll go out and harvest a hundred peonies every morning to put into the cooler so we can have them they bloom the second week of June at our place and then we can keep them a month and a half usually in the cooler so it, that marshmallow state, so that's helpful. So you had mentioned how uh, some of your decisions on what to grow come from looking at this, the same Pinterest pages that some of your clients may be looking at, which I think is very clever. Yes. But uh, so then you buy seed uh, based on then what you think people might want. Has, has it ever, does it ever work out that you get orders far enough in advance that you buy specifically for them? Oh, absolutely. Okay. Because our, I'm talk, I started talking to 2022 brides last year. Okay. Everybody books a year ahead. I mean, it's, it's an, a girl that's not good, doing good planning that waits for two months before their <laughs> wedding. So, yeah, we grow specifically for people, and then we just plant pretty much anything that will grow in Michigan. We're, we've got it. I mean, you've got to plant it for this kind of wedding. And we don't have to have a ton because we have that wholesaler, so we're in a good position for that. If it was just our clients coming in, you know, it's an acre garden. They can find something. Mm -hmm. So of... Uh, of of all the things you've, uh, you've tried over the years, or maybe more recently, if that helps, what's really been a hit and what has just totally flopped? Well, I think... You gave up on Cosmos also. You gave up well, on Cosmos too. We did, mostly. we did mostly, but we still had to have some white ones, so I was really glad that we had a small spot. The Amaranthus is beautiful, even though it's huge. People love it. And Broomstick... 
everybody loves the broomstick. Um, of course, snapdragons are beautiful, but the Madam Butterfly snapdragons are m far more fabulous. Lysianthus, forget it. I'm, I just started buying, buying uh, what do you call plugs? At least plugs, right? Um, yeah, uh, plugs of Lizzie and. Um, and you got to be careful with some of the species that you can find are invasive. You know, like the baby's breath. You you, you don't want to get into you know get that kind of thing. We've gotten rid of rue because people were getting burnt on it. Some people are allergic. Uh, oh, it's like actually a skin reaction. Yeah. yeah and oh. Not severe. not petasporum, but um, the other. Oh, snow on the mountain. The big tall snow on the mountain that you can grow. Beautiful, beautiful, almost looks like a flower, green and white, grows super easy, reseeds itself like crazy, but it also can cause a rash, so you really have to warn people hmm. about, yeah, about that. Why have both of you given up on Cosmos for the most part? What's the deal with Cosmos? It doesn't hold up very well. Uh, Not when they cut flower, you cut it and droop right then. And hey Bruce, when, you want to hold that other yeah. mic when you're talking? or? I, I haven't given up on it. <laughs> you haven't given up, okay. Um. No, I mean, but we're ordering a lot of anemones, and only the perennial anemones grow here, and they have yellow centers, and everybody wants the blue centers, you know. So, yeah, but there's a really tons of fun U-Pick stuff. There's a little annual forget-me-not that's, there's hardly any blue flowers, so get that in, because it's this big blue bushy thing, and it regrows, and there's just so many cool things that, from ordering from the wholesaler, and looking at Pinterest, or the, all the flower magazines that you go, oh, I sh why don't I try that? So it's just, after 30 years of doing this, it's great. And Bells of Ireland, long growing season. Oh, I love that one. Yeah, they're, they smell good. And don't tell, don't, you don't pick the leaves off like you see them everywhere. You don't need to do that because the leaves are beautiful, they smell, it makes it so much fuller. Stock is beautiful, it's a lot harder to grow because you have to pick out certain ones that you know, after they grow so much, you look for ones that have two leaves and you have to pick those out. But if you read the Johnny Seed suggestions, and I'm sure all the other magazines have that too, but just read their instructions and follow it. And really, it's, it's, they're pretty hard to kill, any of that. The number of individual crops that we've already named just in this interview is dizzying. Uh, how, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, how did you, and, and so that, this is it for you, Bruce. I want to make sure you got the mic on. Did it, did, is it on? Turn it on? Can you just tap it and see? No, no. No, we got it. Yeah, I want you to use that. So there's a lot of different things out there. And what is unique, I think, it's not just multiple varieties. When it comes to flowers, it's a lot like, well, it's not exactly like herbs, but you get distinctly different species that come from distinctly different plant families. And when it comes to crop management, that's kind of crazy to me. When you grow tomatoes and peppers and eggplants, a lot of the same pests occur. A lot of the same pesticide labels match. You can use right. the same stuff on peppers as you use on eggplants and vice, you know, vice versa. But when you have several species of flowers coming from so many different plant families, and I think mainly as it comes to herbicides, like right. there's almost like nothing you can do in any blanket way, correct? Right. It's, herbicides are particularly are difficult <clears throat> because you have the broad spectrum. You got, if, you're not, if you're not careful, then there goes your annual planning. Mm -hmm. uh, I've relied on Roundup for the years, okay. and I had some after I quit farming. I had a stock of it, so glyphosate. I've been have that. I've been use that, and I'm careful with that. I can direct it to the ground and the rows. 
But okay. one thing I found out also too is you say they get the flowers and the vegetables. Mm-hmm. I gave up on vegetables because it's, it's just too different than mm-hmm. the flowers. Where a lot of flowers have the same pests, you have the aphids, you have the thripe, okay. you have the be- Japanese beetles, and you can attack those with the same spectrum of chemicals. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah. And then the herbicides. I, Did you talk about that? Yes. Yeah, so with Roundup, you use that as like a burn down ahead of the annual plantings and then for between row, like very tight spot treatments. Is that what I'm hearing? Yes. Okay. And I use them in the perennials because the beds are, you know, they're spaced about, uh, spaced better. Mm-hmm. And so it's easy to get around in without, atta- without drifting onto the plants. And I don't mulch very often because I, I encourage volunteers. 50% of our return crops are seeds that have receded at volunteers, I call them. Is that right? Yes. So, then, so in the flower industry, there's not a lot of hybrids then that would make that, that next crop a little different than what you started with? Some are, yes. Okay. You can't count on the same color of the seeds that came out of the, but you get a plant. Okay. Yeah, and, so we don't care. Right. <laughs> We're artists. <laughs> and lot, yeah. And so then you can take the seedling and move it to where you want it if, and move it around. And, or not. And, or not. And let a... 10-foot sunflower grow yeah. in the middle of nowhere. I let the garden take care of itself. <laughs> yeah. So what, what would you say your biggest pest is then? With, with, is it a generalist pest that gets everywhere, or is there like just one crop that just gets this one thing Roses so bad every year? Roses have the aphids and the thripe. Those are, that's hard to control. The thripe is particularly because it's like it burrows and gets in there. It's almost microscopic. So you have to use a systemic insecticide for that, which you can pick up at a hardware store or the nurseries sell all these things now, broad spectrum of stuff. You have and beetles, we have the Japanese beetles that come in, but there's a biological by Captain Jacks that attacks it and I can control it very easily with that. If I, once I, if I, before I, it gets too infested, you gotta get in there quick and keep an eye on it. You start seeing a beetle, you spray everything. And yeah, the Japanese beetle product you're talking about, I think that's called uh, Bavaria bassiana. I was wrong. It's called Spinosad. Yes. Mm-hmm. They found it in Jamaica. Yeah. So um, do you use that directly on the beetles or you apply it to like the lawns and landscapes around? Because I think I, that's I how... I apply it directly to the plant. Is that right? Okay. Yeah. Huh. And it, yeah, then they start to eat it and then the bacteria attacks them that way. Okay. Anything else you'd like to add about the plant management? Not off the top of my head. Do you do the planting as well or just or more on the chemical side? I do the planting. and. that. Okay. The annual garden every year, the seeds. And, so, uh, the, yeah, I do have another question for you then. So <laughs> this resource that Terry put together in the back there has a list of plants on uh, every row and then the, the bloom times going across. Yes. So those bloom times, you know, if this was a perennial that came up every year and just kind of followed its own cycle, the bloom time would be based on mostly the weather. Degree and, days. And degree days. And it still is that way for annuals, but planting time is also super important. How do, you, how do you figure out your planting times for all these diversities of bloom windows that you're trying to hit? Well, and that's one thing, when I, since we're not using vegetables, we don't have to worry about putting the peas in early and the lettuce. We, <clears throat> we just concentrate on one thing, we start seedlings awesome. early. So we, we have seedlings already in a greenhouse, and we just wait till end of May or the last full moon in May, and usually that's safe. And, and we're we can, on the peninsula, so we're a little protected, so right, the, of course the it's gonna vary a little bit. Okay, 
So you basically start everything by seed in a greenhouse and you put everything out of transplants almost on the same weekend. June 1st, like, yeah. Wow. And then that sets, that's got you set for the whole season. You don't do any uh, replants throughout the season or multiple plants? There's a lot of them that you can, but all the, we're, we're so busy, we can't. But look, on that little thing at the bottom of those seed packets, it tells this, you could reseed this, you could reseed this, but we have a long enough summer, a lot of it just reseeds itself. And we do gladiolas too, so we put those in every week for a while. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So I have a question more on the um, the difference between you and Blake's in size and what that <laughs> and what that means. Uh, so you have a smaller operation. How many people do you hire? We used to have ten, and then when COVID hit, we went down to three plus myself. And now I've structured it because I want to retire, I've structured it so we can do about three to four weddings a weekend with the four of us. I got rid of the prop business, we're just doing flowers, and we have a couple teams that go out, do setups, and you can structure it any way you want, you know, honestly, and there's, uh, where we live, there's enough business, you don't, we don't advertise, it just, lucky. What you said about advertising and how you don't do it, and you said this twice before about volunteering. Yes. You told me about this on the phone before we started this. I know you really want to talk about it, and I, uh, I tried to put a name to it that I thought was clever. Philanthropic equity. <laughs> you've, you've earned philanthropic equity with your community. Tell me more about that and how you feel like that it has benefited you and how people can engage in it themselves. Well, when we started out, our kids were in high school, and there were a lot of women who came from Chicago and all these places, and they saw the need in Traverse City to do fundraising for Child Family Service, March Dimes, uh, all kinds of things. And every community has different things that they do, but you need, if you're going to do a flower business or a vegetable business or, or any kind of farm market, if you can get involved in those, even if you can't do what you do, get involved with those, because if you can show off a little bit and get your name out there, honestly, it's just the best thing. And, and that they think of your name before they think of anybody else. If they, they said, oh yeah, Terry Hooper helped, she was pretty, whatever. She was pretty artistic. <laughs> she showed up on time. So, you know, they, they, they see those things about you and they remember you. So even if you can't go and sell your beans, you get your name out there, and that's that's just a ton of goodwill to, to get your name out there doing good things for your community. I like that. Yeah. I like that. Um, I want to ask you both the same question that I finished with Blake's with, yeah. uh, and then move it out to the audience. And I'd like both of you to answer these two questions. What is your most common complaint as managers, and what is your most common complaint from customers? I think from customers, it's probably sad signage because you know like you said we can have a ton of signs they're never the right signs I think where we park is very reasonable no one parks that way I honest to goodness every 200 people that come in there one person will park in the right place and pricing luckily we just go out there if we see somebody that we think is new we go out and introduce ourselves otherwise we don't do anything they come over, they park, they get their clippers, they kind of look at the sign, it's kind of vague pricing, quarter to a dollar, and usually people will throw in more money than less because they love it. If they followed our price line, we wouldn't make as much money, quite hmm. frankly. They really? just don't want to sit and count stems in a bucket. 
they have their own 20 bucks, and I know it's $5 worth. But oh. yeah, I, it's terrible. I'm, it, and it's just really hard. And now wholesale pricing is tripled in, in one year. So I feel like we should raise it, but it hasn't really tripled for us. Well, I guess, I guess it really has. Maybe not tripled, but it has gone up. But, and so we probably could do better on pricing and signage. They don't complain to us, though, because they're just so stinking happy to be there. If you're at a flower farm, like you said, it's beautiful. They don't care if they're not picking it or not. It just adds so much. And they come and they take pictures, and we get graduation pictures and pictures for magazines. And we're... And the bridles. Oh, the bridles. Pictures. And we've got this famous tree limb that everybody wants to sit on. And, and they just wander around. And we have an Australian shepherd, and she just bounces around and makes everybody throw the ball, and she's entertainment. And, and I think... My biggest I'm complaint. Losing, I'm losing track of who's complaining. Is anybody complaining? <laughs> Nobody's complaining. Okay. Well, that's, uh, all right. I'm complaining because okay. I got to do too much book work. I okay. don't get to do the fun stuff anymore. So I'm trying to get my assistant to do it. Sometimes but, it's the mother that's not happy. Yeah. Do you have complaints? I I don't deal with the people very often. I will if I'm out in the garden. I'll show them around and play. They don't know how to cut flowers for one thing. That right. They just cut too long or too short. But that by then, there's nothing I'm going to do about it. So. Right. But, and they, 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 they're happy. They like to do that. If they're happy, then it's fine. I'm happy. If they go along and walk around the yard, they, they stay, we have paths, so they stay out of the beds if they, you know, just a cut. And so. You can make a lot of money on an acre and a half yep. and not really working that hard. And the fun work, it's fun work. So we're like very happy. Alone where we are. Yeah. I mean, if I was 20, 30 years younger, I would like to do that, but nah. <laughs> <laughs> well, we were farming then, too. So. Yeah, we were farming. <laughs> well, uh, Naeem, you want to come up and grab this mic from Terry, and they can share the one on the stand, and oh, yeah. we can get uh, questions from the folks. Raise your hand nice and big so Naeem can find you. So could you elaborate a little bit more on the EPIC process as far as from the customer side when they pull in your driveway, what happens next? They get out of the car. There's a, there's a garden shed right there, and my studio is kind of down the hill, so we can see them. So if we don't know them, we'll go out and say, hey, we're down here if you need us. Bathroom's down here. And they just look at the pricing. There's clippers, a basket. They go down to the perennials, out to the annuals. They cut whatever they want. Nothing's off limits. They come in, sometimes they ask me for pricing. I said, just give us what you want. Or it's a quarter stem and you know, like big flowers are a dollar. So usually they just throw in 20 bucks and they never have $20 worth of flowers. I mean, hardly, if, and if it's a, a wedding, we do, um, they'll call me ahead of time and say, hey, can we come and cut enough flowers to pick? We've had three you pick weddings in there cutting for a huge weddings in one day and you wouldn't even know. That it, that it was. So there's, there's an, always enough stuff between the perennials and the annuals. Yeah, yeah. And we, we leave a change box in the oh. garden shed, $20 change usually, and then I check it through throughout the day, and we've never lost any money out of it. We've never wow. had over the That's years. That's nice. Maybe personally out the all night long. We have a credit app, so if they need to pay with credit, they can do that. Do they pay with the credit app through like a QR code? Uh, no, I just sent them an email. Okay. I had a different question. Um, okay. Now, all these uh, varieties require different spacing. Um, how do you handle that when you're planting? Do you use a wheel planter? Do you hand plant? How does that work? We had a wheel planter. It didn't... I didn't like it. Yeah, he didn't, he didn't like it. It was too much work. I don't think we have the volume really to justify 
So yeah. how, are, how are you planting your annuals then? By hand? Yes. Right. Okay. <clears throat> nope. Shuffle 12, hoe. 12 by 12. 12 by 12 spots usually. And then we can just do each spot as far as they, and we find that usually we can plant them much closer than it says. As long as people have enough room to walk through the rows, that's pretty much what we care about. Yeah. Do you have any issue with uh, people with safety and the cutting tools? No, they're not that sharp. No. <laughs> Kidding. He sharpens, sharpens them. Okay. No. Nobody's ever, ever. No, and do you uh, let kids handle them, or do you? They have. We have kids scissors out there for them. Par okay. And the kids are always with their parents. Yeah. So. Okay. They're yeah. Supervised. It's never been an issue, but you know, get insurance if you're going to do that kind of thing. It's not that you get insurance, but you make sure you tell your insurance company that you are doing this and that you're letting people on your property because, mm. yeah, you just want to let them know. So homeowners cover most of these things. Yeah, except for yourself. It doesn't cover that. In your UPIC, do you send home the flowers in a sleeve or just in their hand in a bundle or just? Whatever they want. I have a friend that's the fanatic, a fanatic shopper, so she'll go to the uh, sales and pick me up vases so I have I leave the stickers on them so if they want a vase the, the little it's a it's like an old golf shed it's got a bunch of vases in it if they want a vase they take it the water source is there we give them the little packets of floral life um, we did do sleeves but generally people just take them up I have a roll of paper and they tear it off and they take it home in paper it's mostly locals <laughs> okay I think we got time for one more you plant at the end of May, and then you're able to start picking in June? Because of the annuals and perennials. Mostly perennials are going to be in June. Uh, yeah, so we have the perennials growing like crazy in June. And we have peonies, roses, lilacs, daffodils, and things. And then the annuals come on late August and September yeah. and October. That's when and then the per uh, perennials are done. So. Until another couple months, then you have other oh, perennials. Yeah. Like, yeah, roses are all the time, and then galardia and a lot of the things that you were talking about. Yeah, so you have those. Okay, well. So what? Oh, yeah. Sunflowers, yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, so they do sunflowers, too. Yes. Great. Uh, Terry, Bruce, I really appreciate you coming today. Uh, Happy to be here. Let's give them a hand. So I'm running out of room at the lower table there, uh, but I'd, I'd like you to be present for any other questions if we get them for like the whole group. Um, but now we have another guest, special guest coming in from around the Jackson area. And this is, this is gonna be a little different. This is gonna be a little different from the last two. I'd like to introduce to you Rachel Mifsud, and she works for a company that she's founded called Will Forage for Food. Can you tell me, can you wanna give an outline on what that's all about? Um, yeah, I do. I, I teach people how to forage, basically, and that's the short version. That's the short version. That's the short version. I teach people how to forage, and I think it probably how I got here today is that I do that on several CSA and UPIC farms. They have classes that I, I run. I think that might be where you... So your business model is education primarily, yes. not, not in the sale of picked... Food from no, the wild. actually, I have a strict policy against selling. Mm -hmm. um, I don't have anything against foragers who do sell, but I feel like it creates a conflict of interest to t 
talk to people and teach them about sustainability and uh, ethical harvests and then turn around and harvest like, you know, 500 pounds of ramps mm -hmm. to sell. Mm -hmm. So um, it's not like that couldn't be done ethically, but I feel like it creates the illusion of a conflict of interest, so I just don't sell anything. Okay. I just, it's all education. Alrighty. So, what is your primary customer base to this to these educational outputs? It's everybody. Yeah. Um, I get. It's probably the only place in the world where you can put like a barefoot hippie and a full fledged prepper in the same place, and they talk to each other, and because <laughs> <laughs> they both don't like the government, and and they they both want to be self sufficient. So, <laughs> yeah. And uh, what. Uh, I, I got to go to one of your classes after I invited you. I was like, I should probably go see one of these classes. <laughs> and so I went to one. It was on a public, it was on a public land in Brighton. Uh, and that was just one class of several that you offer within a given year. Can you tell me more about how, what locations that you, you do this on? How do you choose them, public, private, uh, your own property? How do you differentiate and what's offered? Okay, so um, yeah, I do a lot of stuff on public stand, public state of Michigan land. Um, I had to get like a blanket permit that allows me to use the the land for commercial purposes. Um, but I also, like I said initially, I do a lot of stuff on people's farms. People who have CSAs and UPICs and want to draw business to the farm can have like on a Wednesday when it might be a slow day. Well, let's have a six o'clock class on a Wednesday and tell people how to use the herbs that are growing on the farm as well as all of these weeds that are growing around here as well. Um, and so that brings people out to the farms and gets them buying the produce as well. Mm -hmm. So. Um, and uh, you have camps, I'm, I take it? I do, yeah, I run camps sometimes. And again, I do sometimes do those on the, the farms as just a way to bring publicity to the farm. Sometimes I do them on my, I have a 10 acre parcel, and sometimes I do them on state land. It just depends on the focus of the camp. Okay, those are usually overnight? Weekend. Weekend. Yeah, usually Thursday or Friday through Sunday. And the participants stay overnight? Yeah. Okay. Yep, they camp. That is a topic of interest alone within some of these groups is like how you may be able to have people camp on your property, which is adjacent to the you know other pieces of what they're trying to do. How have you, you have any lessons learned there, or having people camping out at your place? Yeah, have them sign a waiver. Yeah. Definitely, have sign them sign a waiver. A waiver. Yep. Okay, that fella at the trade uh, the roundtable last night mentioned a website called Hip Camp, that seemed like a way to. I don't know, make it easy. Have you heard of that? No, I haven't. Um, and to, I don't want to make it sound scary. I've never actually needed that waiver for anything, mm -hmm. but it makes them read the rules. Aha, uh -huh. yeah. So you have them sign a waiver, they have to read it before they sign it. Or at least they can't claim that they didn't read it because they signed it. So right. then when they do something they weren't supposed to do, you can say, well, you signed this thing. Yeah, yeah. So. That's a good way to protect yourself. So um, I asked this question to the other guests in different ways, but I want to try to ask you this question, and I thought, I'm interested in your answer. They grow 20 different crops. Uh -huh. uh, the, the Hoopers grow, so I didn't ask you how many, but you, there, I got dizzied by the numbers, you the, the names you spit out. Um, how many things do, are you, do you do forage in a year? Wow, can you put a number to that? No. There's so um, many. Yeah, there's, there's so many. Um, I fill a six cubic foot freezer every year. Okay. With produce that I then take to an event where we have about 250 people and feed them all weekend. Yeah. 
So, um, and that's just to do it for that, that one event. That's not what mm. I could get. Yeah. Like, I would say, I don't know, a thousand different species. A thousand different species. Yeah. And, and not just leaves either. You're working with roots, uh, roots spark, spark, flowers, fruits, nuts, mm -hmm. okay. mushrooms. Yeah. When do you start with this type of thing? When do you when do you start foraging and does it slow down? Is there like a peak or um in that you don't really start or stop. It's a year round thing. Mm -hmm. But in my mind, the foraging year starts when the maple sap starts. Okay. That's that's I don't know if it's like that for other foragers, but in my mind, that's when the year starts, is when the, the maple sap, because that's when spring starts. Uh -huh. um, and so then you start getting, you know, you get your sap season, and, and then you start getting some little shoots start coming up and little sprouts and things like that that you can start foraging, usually even before the sap is done running. Mm -hmm. um, and then it slows down just like a farm at the end of October into the early part of November. Mm -hmm. um, and it's slow over the, the winter, but there's still stuff. There's, there's things that stay green under the snow. Mm -hmm. There's root certainly root, things, root right? crops. That, well, although, to be honest, trying to forage for roots in the middle of January, you need a pickaxe. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it's, it's not something you really want to do. I mean, if you're in a survival situation, you can do it, but it's, it's not recommended. <laughs> yeah, maybe you should bulk up before that point. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So. Oh, uh, so what can be legally harvested? If we want to think about these as, uh, I don't know, wildlife, there's permits for something like a deer. Yeah. How about with our plants? Yeah, what there's can no you... permits for plants. You okay. just do it. You just do it. Yeah. Um, the, Does it matter the type um, of land, like the owner, like yeah, state on, or federal or, or I think on federal land, or... you can do fruits, nuts, and mushrooms. On state land, you can do fruits, nuts, and mushrooms, and a few flowers. Okay. Um, you can't do anything that's going to, quote, damage a plant, but nowhere in the law does it define what damage is, Okay. which is a big loophole because like, if you think about something like a nettle, uh -huh. you cut the top off of it to harvest it. Yeah. It then flowers seven flowers instead of one. Huh. So did I damage it or did I help it? It's a great question. Yeah. So I say I helped it and I'll take that to court. <laughs> That's the other thing, though, is that the penalty for doing something wrong is three times the value. What is three times the value of a nettle? Uh, and is it, the, is, is, the, is it the one thing or the seven things that came from it? Right, yeah. exactly. Okay. So. Uh, so when you have these classes, you have them set up um, periodically throughout the summer. Mm -hmm. Do you have like a, uh, within that range of classes, you've got a few every month, is there like a hot time for a particular item that people are thinking like, I think they're around now, or I was told this is the time for this thing, and I want to go to her class now? April and May. April and April May. And I make probably a third of my money for the year in April and May because everybody wants to get out. Mm. And also, you do anything with the word mushroom in it in April and May, and everybody is there. Yeah. Because everybody wants the morels. And I, I don't even do anything with I run a mushroom camp in May on Memorial Weekend, and I put in gigantic gigantic letters that there is no guarantee we are going to find morels and it sells out in like three weeks every year. Yeah, yeah. Because they want to find the morels. So, so I, know, I know a lot of farmers had a wet fall mm -hmm. and it was, it was with uh, a, a hanging head in many cases. However, uh, when I went on your foraging trip, we saw several mushrooms and I remember you remarked, there were mushrooms this year that I've never seen before because it was just an amazing mushroom fall. It, it was insane this fall for mushrooms. Yeah, I, 
I mean, I've been, my parents started taking me foraging when I was like a few months old. Uh -huh. So I've been looking for mushrooms my whole life and there was a whole bunch of stuff out there that I have no idea what it was this year. So don't eat it. <laughs> don't eat it. But it was fun to look at. Um, but yeah, it, it, that's the thing about foraging that makes it so much different from farming is it doesn't matter what the weather is, something's doing good. Something's out there. Something okay. is doing good, something is having a good year. Okay, so you just have to orient to where you're, where you're looking. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, now, you got your own property and you host camps on that property. Mm -hmm. And uh, before, we, before we met to, or before we're, this event, we had talked a few other times and you had mentioned how you had taken some time to make some improvements to the property to make that, uh, those camps um, more enjoyable in some way. Can you tell me what your goals were there? Um, well, so, you know, when you have a bunch of people for a camp and then it rains, it kind of sucks. So we wanted to, I wanted to have a pavilion where we could hold classes under if it was raining. Um, so we, and in keeping with the foraging theme of the business, we foraged some trees and uh -huh. made a pavilion out of cedar. Mm -hmm. um, also, I wanted to have forageable water on site, so we pounded a well. Mm -hmm. So um, it just kind of keeps to the atmosphere of the, the camp itself. Okay. Um, and I also bought a little tiny trailer to have as a first aid tent. Because uh -huh. you, you have to be prepared for people that are going to cut their finger when they're trying to carve a spoon or something. Yeah, yeah. You know, how, about, so. how about bathroom facilities? Is that something on your list? Outhouse. Outhouse? Okay. Outhouse. Okay. Um, now, on your property, if you're trying to manage for some of these species that can be foraged, what are techniques that you can do to, um, to improve some of the popular forageable items? Um, you know, and I think you have a special word for this. Farmaging. Yeah. Tell Farmaging. Me I go out on the state land and I pick stuff and then I farmage it into my landscaping at my place. Uh -huh. So, and then I just let it grow. Okay. So I kind of went out and foraged it and then planted it. So it's, yeah, but yeah, farmaging. I also use the word farmaging for when I go onto somebody's farm and pick all of their weeds, like the purslane and the goosefoot that they don't want. <laughs> so that's, that's also farmaging. Okay. On your property, or if you had enough property where you could forage regularly, um, do you think a like a CSA or some kind of community garden model or something like that could work? If you did a food forest, a I think. A food forest. A food forest, like, or some sort of permaculture type thing. You would have to, you, you can't just buy 20 acres and let people go out there. That's not going to work. Okay. Um, but you, you have to somehow increase the density of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, Maybe have trails or something. Have again. trails and then, you know, like, get some of the more native fruit trees, but some of the things that you can't necessarily go to the U-Picks for, like nanny berries. Nanny berries. Or haws, or things yeah. like that. So things that would, I mean, they grow naturally, they grow wild. Um, you just gotta encourage them, you gotta farmage them. Yeah, does that involve, um, does that involve playing God a little bit with like what survives, what doesn't? Other than just planting, you, are you like, would you like clear areas or like remove certain species, invasive species? I'm not species? that sophisticated. Um, uh -huh. I, I do control invasives yeah. um, as best I can. But um, no, I think more than anything, it's just about encouraging the things that you like. So for example, I, I planted 
a couple years ago, I planted a bunch of leeks mm -hmm. because I didn't have leeks on the property. Um, and so I have to leave them there for five years or so until they, and so like, nobody can touch them, yeah, even the though they're on, the, they're on the camp. You know, people come for the camp, they get excited about the leeks, and I'm like, you can't touch the leeks. <laughs> um, but then once they get to a point where they're harvestable, you almost need to harvest them to manage them because they get root bound if, oh. if they just get too dense. And so harvesting them actually opens them up and makes them grow better. Okay. So you just, I think you have to know each plant. Yeah, definitely. Because that works for leeks. It wouldn't work for, you know, like lotus or something like that. You have to, you'd have to manage that differently. Okay. So. You're, we're just, this is the tip of the iceberg. I, I, there's a lot of plants with a lot of very unique biologies out there. Mm -hmm. um, so in your business model as an education uh, provider who does classes pretty much on the fly and like, you know, I, I will travel and teach a class here, there, everywhere. Mm -hmm. um, how do you plan for an excursion? Um, yeah, how do you set it up? How do you set dates and get it out there for people to hear about? Um, well, if I'm working with one of the local farms, of course, they put it in their newsletter or whatever they have on their website. Um, if I'm working on state land, it's all just me. But either way, I have, I, I put it on my website, it goes on Facebook, it goes on Instagram, it goes on TikTok, it goes on YouTube, it goes, I mean, it just, I just have to put it out everywhere. Mm -hmm. And I don't have like, I'm not like one of these social media guru things with thousands and millions of followers or anything like that. But between all of them, I have enough followers that... You're consistent. I think that's half the battle. Yeah. You, you have consistent releases of things. Yeah, and I've been doing it for almost 10 years now. So I've built up a following, I guess. Yeah, yeah I'd say so. Um, what's the, what's the um, way that people pay you to do these things? Cash if I'm lucky. Yeah? Yeah. Um, but also, I, I have a square. You have, you've got square? Yeah. Okay. Yep. That must have been what I did, because I went through a website thing. And yeah, yeah. If you pay that. through the website, you go through Square. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, is there data that you harvest from that in any meaningful way that get, clues you in on, like, what, like, something that doesn't go well versus something that does, just based on the numbers that Square can give you on, you know, revenue? Probably. <laughs> <laughs> um, my accounting method is pen and paper. Yeah. So I... I because I, I do have to account for cash, and probably two-thirds of my income is cash. Mm -hmm. So I have, to, I have to be able to account for that through something other than Square. Okay. Um, so I just use uh, Ledger. Mm -hmm. And yeah, there are certain, certain types of camp, like the mushroom camp always makes a good profit yeah. because there's not a lot of expense for me in that. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, I have another camp where I had to buy $500 worth of beaver meat, so that's going to cut into my profit. Beaver meat? Yeah. Yeah, because we eat foraged foods all weekend. Beaver meat beaver. from the animal beaver. Yeah. Okay. Tastes like roast beef. All right. You had to buy 500 pounds of Yeah, because I don't trap. Okay. Where so, does one acquire 500 pounds of beaver meat? You have a network because you're a forager. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so there are people who do trap nuisance beavers in the state. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah. I've had, ground I've had groundhog before, and it tastes a lot like hamburger, too. Yeah, groundhog's pretty good. Yeah. Um, beaver's better. Is it? Yes. Also, you get a lot of jokes when you serve beaver to I'm a lot sure, of people. I'm sure you do. So we're, we're actually making beaver tacos just to make it even better. Oh, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> Plug your ears, kids. 
All right, so as far as I know, um, well, you're the main person I've interacted through with the, the business Will Forage for Food, but mm -hmm. on your website there's, there's at least one other person mentioned who can lead tours, or mm -hmm. um, how does that work within the business model? Are they, are they getting a, like a cut, or is like, how is the... Um, no, it's, it's mostly just me. Mm -hmm. um, Min and Sean, I don't think Sean's on the website, but I have basically two other instructors mm -hmm. who do classes occasionally, um, and really, it's just them tagging onto the name that I've built. Okay. So we're all independent. Oh, I they see. Do, they do their thing, I do mine, I just allow them. Because it also gives me more of a network as well uh -huh. by having other instructors on there. Okay. Um, and sometimes we, I mean, I guess I shouldn't say that. A lot of times we do team, when we do the weekend camps, it, you never do those by yourself. You never. always have to have at least one other person because you can't, you cannot be on from 4 o'clock Friday until 4 o'clock Sunday. You just can't do it. Yeah. You know, and so you need another person to trade off with. And then we usually have a work study at the camp as well, just to have somebody that's responsible for making sure we have plenty of firewood all the time. A work study, that means, a th is that code for a third person doing something? Yeah, it's somebody that comes to the camp for free in, in exchange oh. for work. Okay. So okay. they don't pay for the camp, they come in and it's their job to cut vegetables and, uh -huh. you know, like I said, gather, gather firewood, make sure to get up at six o'clock in the morning because I don't want to, and yeah. make sure that the fire's ready at seven to cook breakfast, things like that. Okay, okay. So, so you'd mentioned how um, by having some other people um, lead classes under the, uh, under the business name that that can kind of spread the word about mm -hmm. what you're doing there. What other types of advertising and customer you know, acquisition efforts do you have to go through or do you feel like work well for what you do? It's mostly social media. It's mostly social media? Yeah, I have, I have like I said, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, YouTube. I post stuff on all of it. Okay. So, and and so do the other teachers. They uh -huh. they post in different places, and so it kind of broadens that network. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't know if there's sometimes I write articles and throw them in magazines and stuff like that. Okay. So that's another way. Uh, okay. Or do things like this. Uh huh. You know. And you'd mentioned how you do you do these. Oh, go, go ahead. I was just going to say whatever that word was you used for. Philanthropic, I, I do that. Philanthropic equity. Yes, yes. I, I try to volunteer for a, a class at least once every couple months for people who can't necessarily afford to uh -huh. pay for the classes. Yeah. So, or try to do some sort of volunteer event okay. every couple months. Oh. As that is part of my business model, is, okay, is making sweet. sure that I do give back mm -hmm. as part of it. So. Very, very cool. And it does. It pays, like, like they were saying, it, it pays better than any paid advertising. Wow. It, it's amazing. Word really spreads fast. Yep. So you had mentioned how you do classes on farms. Mm -hmm. um, do you also provide like scouting services to landowners who mm -hmm. wish to, you know, maybe develop something like the, uh, you know, some kind of community garden model or allowing people to come onto the land to forage, but they just don't know what they have or what, mm -hmm. you know, what they could tell the customers. Like, you know, I do have, you know, I see mushrooms back there sometimes. I don't know what they are. Could they hire you and you go out and say, this is what I'm seeing and what yep. you may? Yep, yeah, I do that. Um, I do it throughout most of the lower half of the state. And uh -huh. then there's a, another career foraging instructor who lives up by oh, yeah. Traverse City. Clay was his name, right? Clay, yeah. And um, we kind of have unofficially divided the state in half. Uh -huh. And he stays up there and I stay down here. And then like, 
two or three times a year we swap and do a class. Um, so he'll, he'll come down to Ann Arbor and do a class, and I'll, and I'll go up to Traverse City and do a class um, a few times a year just to, but like I said, it's kind of an unofficial dividing of the state just to, because I don't really want to drive more than a couple hours to do a class, and neither does he, so yeah, that tough. line falls right in the middle. So. Um, what's the rate for that kind of service of scouting some land for people? I usually charge $50 an hour plus travel, and most, uh, most of the evaluations depend. I mean, it doesn't really matter if you have an acre or 100 acres. It usually can be evaluated in two to three hours. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, because the, when you have a big property, you still have the same habitat types. It's, it's not like, you know, that you have... You can be like 50 feet into one, and it's about the same as being 500 feet exactly, into one. Okay. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So, you know, it, at, at the most, if you had a really diverse property, it might take a few hours. Okay. So, um, and even in a very small property, there's usually enough to talk about to keep it going for an hour and a half to two hours. And usually what I do is I'll get those pin flags, those pink flags with the little wires, uh -huh. and um, I walk around the property with whoever's you know, whoever I'm evaluating, and I'll stick pins in, and this is a nettle, this is a mulberry tree, this is, and I number the flags, and I make them walk around with me with a notebook and keep oh. track of the, oh, great. The, and I'll tell them, you know, like, what, this is a nettle, you should look for it in June, you know, and so they'll have this little pin flag, and then they have it in their notebook to come back and look at that pin flag in June. Okay. So. Well, that's a really neat idea. And again, Clay, I think, does the same sort of thing up mm -hmm. in the northern half of the state. So if you're out of my range, because it would be really cost prohibitive for me to drive all the way up to like... Yeah, you charge mileage too. Yeah, I charge travel. Mm -hmm. So it, it gives me about a two-hour range mm -hmm. to really be not cost prohibitive. But say, I think he does something similar. I don't know if he uses pin flags, but he does something similar. Yeah, I talked to him over the phone lands. too. I don't remember what he uses, but he uses something. Yeah. yeah. Um, so how do you get your customers to have the best experience that, they, that they're hoping to get when they come to your classes or camps? It's usually really easy because like, most people don't realize how much is out there. Uh -huh. And they come and they're like, oh, we're going to take this two-hour walk and we're going to see like three or four plants and 25 plants later their head is just exploding and yeah. they're happy. Yeah, there's, okay. there's a lot out there. And like you said, I think maybe your clientele is, uh, is I don't know how to describe them across all the political spectrums and everything, it, yeah. they're just, uh, if they go to a class like that, they're really interested in that kind of thing. Yep. Um, all right, so it, it, it tends to be easy. Do you, run into, do you run into people who bring a friend who's not interested at all? And they're like, well, I got dragged along. Occasionally, but if they have a camera, you can usually engage them and get them like, hey, okay, so you don't want to hear about all this. Can you take pictures for me? Oh, interesting. You know, um, uh -huh. I, I teach college as my real job, and mm -hmm. so I've had a lot of practice getting uninvolved, un, uninterested people to get engaged. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so. All right, I've got my last two questions are the same I asked everybody else. Mm -hmm. uh, what has been, in your time doing this, what's your most common complaint as a manager doing this kind of work, and what is the most common complaint you get from customers? Uh, you had said that they're mostly happy, but mm -hmm. maybe there's something. I'm trying to think, like, sometimes people complain about the food, especially on the weekend camps where we're eating foraged food all weekend, and they're like, yeah, I'm going to go eat foraged food all weekend, and then I feed them beaver, and they're afraid of it, and they starve. 
you know. <laughs> so, um, so, so sometimes, sometimes that. Um, a, a big complaint I got from a, a long time customer who actually, this particular customer has been very influential in my business because she constantly is pushing me, you should do this, you should do this, you uh, should do this. Mm -hmm. And she's so naggy that I just do it to shut her up and then it works. <laughs> <laughs> so she's, she's been instrumental in my business to be honest. But um, her big complaint always is that, is there anything I can do with this besides tea? Because when you forage, you make everything into tea. A lot yeah. of soups and teas. Yeah, and so that's actually was my answer to her. I was like, yeah, you can make it into broth <laughs> instead. Um, just depends on what you put in with it. Mm -hmm. um, so that, that's common complaint is that a lot of people, when they're first learning to forage, they expect that, oh, I'm going to go out and take this two-hour class, and I'm going to be able to feed myself. And that's not how it works. It takes three to five years to learn how to forage and feed yourself. Mm -hmm. and, that, and so I think that disappoints a lot of people. Mm -hmm. So I get some complaints there. Okay. How about um, as a manager? I don't really manage anybody. Like I said, the people that work with me are. Well, you. Uh, how about as a business runner? Yeah, an educational I think probably my runner. biggest thing is when people show up in like a mini skirt and flip flops. Because <laughs> for a weekend camp in the middle of nowhere, yeah, and I'm telling them there's no running water and there's no bathroom, and they're like, and we're going foraging. And yeah, and they're completely unprepared. Um, that's yeah. that's probably my biggest complaint. Okay, is, is, very fair. Yeah, I think that's one that you would have in common with with everybody in this room, <laughs> <laughs> unprepared for the conditions of the day. Completely, or they come on. We have a new, I do a New Year's Day plant walk every Whoa. year, uh -huh. um, and they'll show up with no gloves. Uh, it's freaking New Year's Day. We're gonna be outside for three hours. You have no gloves. What, you know, like. <laughs> I just, I really, the, the, it really irks me if you can't tell my, my, by my voice. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so. well, we got a, about 15 minutes left, and I wanted to make sure we had time for any questions from you all. So, Naeem, you want to grab that mic there, uh, there, and does anybody have questions for Rachel about, about her educational business or foraging in general? Is that you, Mariel? Yeah. Thank you. Do you have any issues with people like sampling things that they shouldn't be eating? And how do you kind of communicate what is edible, what's okay to eat, that kind of thing? Well, we saw a death cap mushroom. When yeah, I was we did with see you. a death cap mushroom. Yeah, we do. We do see things. There's only a couple of plants and a couple of mushrooms that can kill you. The rest are just going to make you really unhappy. So as long as I can make sure people avoid those few that can kill you were usually good. Um, that being said, if somebody sticks something in their mouth without asking me about it, I always tell them that it will kill them. And that usually stops them from doing it again. I got a question about the six cubic feet of stored foraged food, what mm -hmm. that event's like, what are they eating, what is the event, when is the event? Can I come to the event? Yes, you can come to the event. Um, so it's a uh, it's Fire in June. Fire also potentially. I think we might have to. We might have to evacuate. There's a fire alarm. Uh, yeah, I, th I suppose we maybe should work our way to the exit. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Rachel. Give you a hand for Rachel. Hello. Hey, Rachel, it's Ben. Hey, Ben, how's it going? 
Good, good. Uh, I sent you a postcard. I hope you got it. It was a thank you postcard for coming to X. Uh, not yet, but you know. Okay. Well, uh, I'm sure it will be here. It it has baskets on it because you had a basket when we were foraging, so I thought it fit. Okay. Anyway, um, I was going through look listening to the recording that I had made of all the interviews that day, and um, it was uh, we almost got through perfectly except for that stinking fire alarm. And uh, uh, my buddy Naeem had asked a question to you. It, it, he was very impressed with your talk, and he want he wanted to know more about the uh, the foraging get together. Um, yeah, I was, was talking kinda, to him on the way out. That's right, and. And uh, I'm, there's just no like audio record of it, but I do have audio record of him asking the question, and then just no answer because <laughs> because we had to all evacuate. So I wondered if I might be able to like record this call and just have you uh, tell me about that camp, and then I'll just stick it into the podcast as like a, you know I called Rachel back after we all escaped imminent doom. And here's what she said about that. Is that okay? Yes. Yes. Okay. So the event is the Great Lakes Foragers Gathering. Um, We've been doing it for about nine years now. And uh, it's uh, probably the biggest gathering of foragers in the Great Lakes region. I don't know of any others that are nearly as big. Um, And we just all get together for the weekend. And we have foraging classes and bushcraft classes and plant walks. And we all cook forage together and it's a lot of fun so um when is it it's in june i want to say the 23rd to the 26th you can find all the information um at willforageforfood.com on the upcoming events page yes that'll tell you all about it if you're interested so how you can get to be there all right great okay i think that i think that does it and also um when i was reviewing listening to it uh i think i misheard you in the in-person setting and i thought you said 500 pounds of beaver meat but i think you said 500 dollars of beaver meat does that is that the same thing as 500 pounds is it about a no it's not it's not no how many pounds does 500 dollars get you i think i paid 30 a pound for it but i can't tell you the market price of it because I think the market price. I, I think the market price, if you were to actually go out and try to buy it, is is closer to forty five. Okay, so significantly less than five hundred pounds of beaver meat. Yes, significantly less than five hundred pounds. Okay. Like, like I'm actually able to store this in my freezer. <laughs> oh, well, I'd put five hundred pounds of, of beaver. That'd be a lot of beavers too. Yeah, I, yeah. I'm glad I was able to uh, clarify that. <laughs> Okay. Super. It was fun. Thank you for coming to Expo. Thank you for following up with me on this call as well, Rachel. Yeah, not a problem. And and have a good holiday, okay? Yeah, yeah, you too. See you later, Rachel. All right, have a good one. Okay, you too. Bye. Bye. Thanks for joining me in this uh, extra long feature of a live recording from the Great Lakes Expo back in early December in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Uh, This is put together by the Great Lakes Vegetable Producers Network. We're sponsored by the North Central Integrated Pest Management Center 
And we're also supported by the University of Minnesota, who's uh, helping host this podcast um, on Transistor. Okay, well, stay tuned for other episodes in the wintertime at glveg.net slash listen, and I hope to see you soon. Bye.